No one, no discipline can save the world by itself. What design can do, though, it can power up and help all other disciplines. Design is the enzyme that makes revolutions into reality. Right? So revolutions happen maybe in science, in technology, in uh, politics, but without design, that would never become life for everyone else. So the classical example is the internet. It used to be line of programming code until the designers of Mosaic came about and they created the buttons and the hyperlinks and the windows, and all of a sudden we could all use it, right? So I believe that without design, the world cannot change and that design is an agent for change. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. A quick note, stay up to date on all the latest episodes of The Grand Tourist by signing up with your email at thegrandtourist.net. When it comes to the study of any discipline, some names not only document the world around them, but transform it through their observations, ideas, and leadership. My guest today has impacted the way we think about design in ways that are hard to overestimate. Paola Antonelli, Senior Curator at the Department of Architecture and Design and the Founding Director of Research and Development at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Through her exhibitions and initiatives, Paola has expanded the very definition of design in popular culture and led the conversation about not just what's important, but what's next. Born, raised, and educated in Italy, Paola was a magazine editor and contributor for legendary design titles such as Domus and Avatare, as well as an educator, before turning to curatorial. Her shows at MoMA have acted as watermarks in the history of design and how we understand it. From her early show, Mutant Materials, in 1995, that shifted the conversation from what things look like to what things are made of, to collecting ephemeral digital objects like the at symbol in 2010, years before anyone started talking about NFTs. Her latest project, much like this podcast, is a result of the pandemic age. It's called Design Emergency, a social media endeavor she started on Instagram with critic Alice Rossorn, which examines the way that design can impact cities, the environment, and the well-being of the planet. The ongoing project is about to debut in book form when Design Emergency, Building a Better Future, is published by Fiden next month. I caught up with Paola from her office at the museum to talk about what it was like interning for Armani, how she got the gig at MoMA, why talk about the so-called metaverse makes her eyes roll, and how design can still impact and perhaps save a jaded world. I've, of course, I've known you for a while and I've known your work, of course, uh, as long as I can remember, but I... I've read some about your early life in Italy, and I read that you have two parents that were both doctors. And so I'm curious, what was a young Paola Antonelli like in her youth? Well, always um, kind of an overachiever because of my father, who was very demanding surgeon, and uh, but at the same time, also very open-minded in the sense that dad was a surgeon. I was daddy's girl, so I'm going to talk about daddy a lot. But he was a surgeon that paid for his studies doing jazz piano, playing piano, and then correcting copy in a newspaper. So there was a, a, a very Italian kind of upbringing with uh, many different disciplines coming together, but also also a lot of uh, a lot of expectations. And um, 
I was, you know, it was it was a good uh, childhood filled with curiosity, but also with a lot of pressure, if you wish. And uh, and in Milan, I mean, I was born in Sardinia, but because my father and my mother were part of the university, so they were, and the university is countrywide in Italy. So at the beginning, they were sent when they were young to the boondocks, you know, to the Légion étrangère. So I was born in Sardinia, which makes me very proud, actually. <laughs> then my sister was born in Ferrara. Then we were back in Milan, where my parents are from. So grew up most of my life in Milan and uh, uh, still most of my life, funny enough. Today is the 28th anniversary of my arriving in New York to stay for good today. Ah. So it really is, but it still is most of my life in Milan. And, uh, I, and I absorbed from Milan everything, right? Everything that it was good for, I took advantage of design, fashion, the international environment, the, uh, the kind of rigor and discipline and work ethics, and at the same time, the love for life. I mean, it's still Italy, even though it's almost like Northern Europe, you know? <laughs> so so, I, so my, my childhood and adolescence were very, very filled full full of of design and and full of uh culture happily so and where you know what did you do to pass the time as a kid do you have any did you have any passions i i read and i drew i drew a lot oh. and i read and uh oh i also sang that's about it i was never a sports person <laughs> i was actually pretty round <laughs> very round so yeah lots of reading lots of reading and drawing oh wow and and did your parents, you know, what did they encourage you when it came time to to going to to university and and studying? Oh, my university is is farther down the line. They started encouraging me a long time before, like when I was literally a child, not even a teenager, maybe a, a, a yeah, a tween. I was um, I was drawing in ink the slides for my father's lectures. So I can, to this day, draw a cochlea, or a larynx, or a nose, a septum, like <laughs> by heart, you know? So, oh, wow. and, um, uh, and they pretty much encouraged, I, I, I really was pretty, pretty awake, you know, I was pretty quick. So they encouraged everything and they encouraged me to be myself. And I was pretty, I must have been really unbearable because I was pretty full of myself and I told you an overachiever. So when I got out of high school, in Italy, you have to decide, you don't really have college, which is terrible. You have to set your path. And mm. so because I was such an arrogant first of the class, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I decided to go into the hardest university that was available didn't matter what my inclinations were. I chose economics, so a special five-year course at the Bocconi, like really the, the complicated one with econometrics and everything else. And I was, it was a disaster. I was a disaster. It was terrible. I lasted two years. I passed all the tests, but then I said, you know, I, I cannot take this anymore. And I switched to architecture, not because I knew that architecture was my path, not at all. I just wanted to go as far as possible from economics and from the Bocconi. Um, and the farthest possible was architecture because it was a Dante Inferno. It was no regulations <laughs> whatsoever. We were 15,000 students only in architecture, only in Milan. No curriculum that you had to follow. You could do whatever you wanted. You could graduate after five years without ever having taken a course in architecture. 
or you could not graduate at all. It was a mess. And so I remember I felt so happy. The first day I was there, I bumped into a professor. There was Corrado Levi, who you might have heard of, great art critic and artist in his own right. And he was teaching this class. And I opened the door and it was dark and there was hip hop music really loud. And then I saw him and he was had a microphone and had, you know, like a, a, a leather uh, bracelet and was wearing this like fluorescent green sweater and was talking about contemporary culture by impulses. And then I saw these two guys, <laughs> one shorter, the other taller, that were like jumping and writing graffitis on the wall, you know, I mean, in the university. So it didn't really matter. The walls were white once upon a time. And in, I realized it was toxic and A1. There were some of the uh, first wave graffiti artists and he had brought them to Milan To I mean, it was just like, okay, I'm wow. in my place here. And I was really, really happy. And I just took the curriculum, the European curriculum for architecture, and I, and I followed it. So I graduated with the right exams and I got a master's there. And the rest is history. You know, when I was still there, I studied. And when I was still in the university, before I even graduated or got my master's degree, I started working for Domus. I started being a freelance curator. And from thing came thing. And it was like an avalanche. And here I am today. Before we return to Paola, a word from our partner. Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home, from its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. Known for more than just their furniture, the kitchen systems of Polyform can create dream spaces for nearly any home, transforming them into architectural wonders. The Alea Pro is a restyling of the famed Alea Kitchen from Polyform and combines a highly contemporary and luxurious look with all of the functionality you'd expect from an Italian design. Using smoked glass, marble elements, islands that appear to float, and subtly lit vitrine-like showcases make your everyday tools shine like prized objects. With such a wide array of material choices to consider, the Alea Pro can go from minimal and organic to sleek and expressive. It's a design aficionado's dream. For more information about the Alea Pro kitchen system and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. I did read somewhere that you had perhaps an internship uh, working at Armani uh, in Milan. Well, yeah, but that was like when I was 15. So um, oh, wow. remember, Even... no, no, no. Yeah, I mean, it's Milan, right? So my sister's best friend's mom was okay. the PR for what was Grupo Financiario Tessile, GFT, that owned Armani. And then she became the PR for Armani only. So... When I was in school, I would end classes at one o'clock when I was from age 15 to age 18, when I was in high school. I would finish class at one o'clock, grab a piece of focaccia, walk 10 minutes to Via Durini, where Armani's headquarters were at that time. And in the afternoon, I would be an intern there. I mean, 
I, I think I was unpaid. I mean, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't even remember. But, uh, but seriously, I was there in the PR office. I did all the fashion shows, and Armani was not showing at the fair. He was showing in his own headquarters. So even in that case, I mean, it was. It was really funny, and uh, and he was very sweet. You know, uh, mm. I have this anecdote that I always tell because there are two people that showed me—not only two, several, but two episodes in my life that I will always remember that really influenced me. So, when I was fifteen, sixteen, it was the new romantic moment. So Adam Ant and and you you name it. And so I used to wear all black. And then I would have this like gorgere uh, of like white lace, right? Mm -hmm. And I would have really like smoky black eyes. And there were the um, there were the fashion shows, and Armani's headquarters showroom was all black. It was like black carpet, black walls. It was aluminum, black and aluminum uh, partitions. And then there were the frescoes on the ceiling. And I was wearing all black with the white collar and white shoes. And I looked like a fluorescent duck and I was very proud of myself <laughs> and I felt I was so beautiful. And I remember Armani coming to me and telling me, you look so pretty today, Paola. And I'm like, thank you, thank you, George. You, you look so great. You know what? I want to give you a gift or a pair of shoes. <laughs> so without hurting my feelings, he gave me a pair of black shoes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I will always remember it. And instead, another episode that I remember was, um, you know, fast forward a few years, I work for Domus and I am in Los Angeles. I'm 24 and I am just like starting out. And so I, I get to Los Angeles, everything new. I rent a car, I buy this new tape recorder. I just like everything, a microphone and everything. I go to interview Frank Gehry. So... I go upstairs wow. and um, shows me around the whole um, the whole office. We sit down. He gives me a long interview. In the meantime, I'm recording everything, taking notes, and everything is wonderful. I go downstairs in the car. I pick out the tape recorder. I turn on the tape. Nothing. Because I had bought what at that time was the latest technology voice operated recording so to oh. save tape it would stop when there was no sound and instead start again when there was voice right uh. problem is the air conditioning at i had tested it before in my car but the air conditioning up in the office had created this white noise so it pretended there was never oh, voice no. so i was like oh my god i don't know where i found the strength but i got off the car i went back pushed the button went upstairs, told him what happened, and he gave me the interview again. Hey, the, you know what? Hey, come on, Mr. Gary. That's a pretty nice thing to do. That's what I'm trying to say. These are things, you know, we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I can be really grumpy and unkind, etc. And whenever that happens, I remember a few things. I remember these two, and it happened to me that I gave interviews again for the same reason, or I tried to really focus, like two days ago, we lost Paul Farmer, Dr. Farmer, that had founded Partners in Health, or, you know, there was another mentor for me, Sarah Turnbull. I mean, I tried to focus on the people that not only were brilliant, but also were gracious, mm. and try to remember what grace is, because at some point in life, frankly, there are many amazing people, many talented people, many masters of their own métier. What differentiates us in our relationships is grace, 
gracefulness. And I try to remember that. Did you keep the shoes? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. No, I don't think so. I think they're long gone. I don't think I really like them. But, you know, I was, you know, <laughs> but I was very, very touched that he had given me a pair of shoes as a gift. And, and you know, coming to L.A. when you're in your early 20s, coming from, you know, living in Milan, that must have been quite the quite the shock. It was amazing. It was not really a shock. It was just like an explosion. Um, you have to remember in Milan, when you go to buy milk downstairs, you have to dress up as if you were going to the Scala, right? So there's a formality, there's an etiquette, there's a way to approach each other. You can be at a party in Milan standing and unless somebody introduces you, nobody will talk to you for two hours. I mean, it, it really is a, a different place. So even though New York was the real complete change, Los Angeles already was. I mean, I remember this sense of freedom of being in California at the edge of the universe with the Pacific Ocean in front of me, the sun, the radio. I was singing to the, along with the radio at that time. I was smoking a cigarette. It was just like the sense of like happiness and serenity. And, um, and I was teaching at UCLA, so you can imagine that fabulous campus. And uh, I was still working for Domus and then for Abitare. So I was, I had a, a, an excuse to go and befriend all the architects and designers in Los Angeles. It was wonderful, really wonderful. And how did, how did all of those, uh, those different positions eventually lead to MoMA? What, what was the sort of the genesis of that? Well, we, we need to go back to Milan just for a moment because, sure. um, you know, when I, I told you that I started working at Domus and, uh, uh, and at that time, you know, the person that hired me was Vittorio Magnago, who was the deputy editor. Then the art director was Italo Lupi and Italo Lupi, who's a great um, graphic designer and uh, communication designer, became the editor-in-chief of Abitare. So he brought me to Abitare. So it's it's like a continuation. And while I was also at Abitare, there was the director of cultural activities at Olivetti Paolo Vitti that was in charge of the Aspen Design Conference for 1989 because it was about Italy. So, you know, I just... Um, what I always tell people is that with the exception of deciding to leave economics for architecture, I never really made a decision in my life. I always was like a really good surfer. So paddling really hard, working like crazy to get to the wave and then having the instinct and the courage to take the right waves. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I worked really, really hard. But I also had luck and I also had a little bit of like... Uh, uh, gumption, you know, so so everything kind of happened because in Aspen, I met a guy who was like the audiovisuals guy, and he was a surfer from Malibu. And I decided I had a crush on the guy, even though nothing ever happened. I it just was a pretext in a way to be in Los Angeles for the two months later, and then I got the teaching position at UCLA. So everything happened um, like that. And for three and a half years, I was spending half of the year in Milan and half of the year in Los Angeles and in San Francisco, where I had a boyfriend. So in the meantime, I was writing and, uh, and interviewing. So it was really great to get to know everyone. And since there was no direct flight to California, it was always a stopover in New York, I would stop in New York every time and interview people also here. 
so I knew the curators at MoMA and I had a little bit of a feeling of what was going on. And especially I knew Terry Riley, I had met him. Terry Riley was the chief curator of architecture and design at MoMA at that time. And I remember once I was in San Francisco and I was a little tired of this life because every time I was schlepping 3,500 slides in my carry-on, I mean, it was just a little, a little too much. And I remember that I opened ID Magazine, the old ID Magazine, i.d.magazine, not ID slash, so the the American one. And there was an ad for my position at MoMA. There was an ad for the position of Associate Curator of Architecture and Design at MoMA. And I remember that on the spur of the moment, I decided to apply, not really knowing what I was doing, which is, that's what I was trying to tell you, um, the surfing. It's not like I was calculating, you know? I said, you know what, uh, I'm going to do it. You know? And I applied and I got the interview and I got the position. And at that point, I was like, oh, my God, I have to move to New York. And that's how 28 years ago today, I landed in New York City to take the position at MoMA in a winter that had 17 snowstorms. Talk about trauma. That was the trauma. That was the trauma. Yes, that. That seems like quite the welcome. New York in the winter, MoMA, first full-time job, really, because it was the first time that I had a nine-to-five job. And even though I owe Terry so much of my career, he was not the mentoring type. I was feeling really, (laughs) it was tough. I was feeling very alone. But, you know, um, afterwards, I got my first major show pretty soon. And so after that, I had no more time to be down or sad or lonely. I just like was working. <laughs> and what was uh, MoMA like as an institution back then? It was, well, to me, everything was new, but comparing it to today, it was, um, you could really feel the engine under your seat, you know, like old cars. So um, in a way, there were fewer people and uh, less bureaucracy. It was smaller in and uh, and yeah, you felt the engine, right? So there were these big curators, chief curators. There was Kirk Varnado, there was Peter Galassi, Liam, Mary Lee Bandy, Riva Castleman. So it was the the time of the big chief curators, and they were so big that it was quite nice. You knew where everybody stood. You know, there was a hierarchy, but there was also a lot of um, a lot of collegiality. And it's still the same today, but it's just much bigger. And I have to say there was no internet when I started. You know, you can imagine there was no email. So I was the one that introduced, that made the first website for MoMA. So <sighs> there was a different, uh, for those of us who have experienced the age before internet, we also know how different communications were mm-hmm. for good and for bad, right? So, so it was a very different, um, a very different institution and the same institution, however, because of its mission, which is, which was then and is today a belief in the power of art to, sorry for the platitude, but it's true, make the world a better place, teach people to be, be better citizens, uh, create a better society. So a belief in art, in the collection, in artists, and in the role of institutions. Before we return to Paola, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janice AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, 
the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from André Fu and Gabellini Shepard to Piero Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. The Cascada Fixed Chaise Lounge is a work of design that reminds us that the outdoors are meant for fun and relaxation, and everything else is secondary. Cascada comes in one versatile white matte finish. That's because it's an iconic no-frills chaise shape with a special twist. You can place this minimalistic, 100% recyclable polyethylene piece poolside or directly in shallow water to stay cool for a bit of watery fun. Its central base sits under the water with no other supports or legs, so Cascada appears to float idyllically in the water. Who said serious design can't be playful? To add some whimsy to your pool this summer, make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. Well, when we're talking about, um, you know, shows at MoMA, and I was just curious, you know, now in this almost post-pandemic period, you know, how would you say that your world, this is a big question, how has your world of sort of curation, especially on design, sort of been impacted in the past couple of years? Well, I mean, I think all curation, not only of design, but also of art, has changed a lot and there was a big reset and reboot and now we're all like looking at each other and starting from scratch right but um of course like many curators i did not want to stop curating and you know what's curating after all it's it's kind of um, a stereotype to think that curating demands a gallery Right. You can be a curator also uh, in a documentary or online or in, in a book. So I remember and it's a parenthesis, but I'm not, I don't know if you know, I ran this MoMA R&D salon. I started a department of R&D in 2012. And um, but the intuition came from 2008. It was a way to prove to the world that museums can be the R&D of society so that you can look to a museum not only for like nice art to contemplate on walls but like if you have if you want to know how to deal with death you know or some big matters in life and the first salon these salons were made with like four different speakers tackling one subject from different angles and my introduction and so on and so forth the first salon was about curation and the four speakers were Maria Popova, who's, um, you know, she's at that time she was calling herself a curator of, of interest. I don't remember anymore of interesting matters on the on the online. Then there was Jeff Jarvis, professor of Q, at CUNY of journalism, who was talking about journalism as curating sources, you know, so helping people understand what the reliable sources are. Then there was Anne Temkin, who's a chief curator of painting and sculpture at MoMA. So like pedigree curator. And the last was Tor Eric Hermansen, who's part of a duo called Stargate that produce and write music for Beyonce, Rihanna. So just like he was talking about curating beats and and, and pieces of like music online and, and putting them together. And um, we came to the conclusion that curating means being a trusted guide, and you have to earn your, your stars on, on the field. And two, the curators need an audience. But these are the two sets of, of like requirements. 
after that, you can be a curator in the olive oil aisle of the supermarket. You know what I'm saying? It really is about earning your your stars and uh, and earning the trust of, of the audience that you have. So when the pandemic hit, um, after the first two, well, first of all, I had opened in February 25th an exhibition of Neri Oxman's work that Neri and I had been working on pretty much for 10 years. So it was pretty pathetic. You know, it's like, and it was a great show. And people who haven't seen it might go online at moment and watch the video because it was fantastic. But unfortunately, it was smack in the middle of the lockdown. Anyway, so... I was at home, um, shell-shocked like everybody else. I was lucky because I was not losing anyone, even though my parents were in Milan in the epicenter, but they were whisked away by my sister to Florence. And, um, and I remember I was just trying to think, and I had been a curator without a gallery before. I had done work, you know, uh, I had done a uh, work that, uh, a research that was completely online together with Jamer Hunt, Design and Violence. I had done videos. I had done, so I was not really, I didn't feel lost because I didn't have a gallery, even though I was sorry about the Neri Oxman show. And uh, I didn't even feel an urge to curate. I mean, at, at first I just was watching what was going on. But then, um, Larry was listening every night to Fat Joe, you know, Fat Joe, the hip hop artist. He was having these Instagram lives every night and they were really engaging with, he was talking to all of his friends. And at some point he said, you know, Paula, you should consider this. And I'm like, hmm. And, um, and so I, I called up my, my friend, Alice Rostorn, with whom I've been friends forever and we've been together at conferences and we have had conversations, but we had never done anything together. And so I started telling her, you know, there's this thing, um, this Instagram live, what do you think? Can we do something together? And so we came up with Design Emergency, like on the spot. And I remember after we had the title, we called Frith Kerr, who's this wonderful designer in London, and she had an identity in three days. And we were off to the races, right? And what was your goal in the beginning? Well, our goal was the one we've had all our lives, which which is to demonstrate to an audience as wide as possible the fundamental importance of design in culture and in society and in making the world a better place. So um, we wanted, we took the opportunity of the pandemic to show all the different nuances and facets of design because too often people think of design as furniture, graphic design, cars, and instead um, Alice and I and you and a few others know that design truly is everywhere. It's the MetroCard machine. It's good. It's bad. It's the um, it's the impossibility to read the, the the electricity counter because it's not designed well. You know, so our belief, you know, Alice and my belief is that if people understood design and were literate in design they could push back, demand better, have higher standards, not only aesthetic, but also uh, also ethical. And you know, by the way, Alice and I believe that aesthetics is important, but as a form of respect. So the opposite of, of beautiful, in my mind, is not ugly, it's lazy, you know, it's indifferent. So it really is about spreading an understanding of design now that things are in dire straits, people could understand it even better. And the first interview was Michael Murphy. Michael Murphy is one of the founders of mass 
Design Group. Mass Design Group is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in Rwanda, and in many other places. And uh, it's it's quite a unique um, office. It's more than 200 architects from all over the world working really on architecture that is embedded in society. So in uh, Rwanda and uh, Haiti, they have done hospitals to cope with the Ebola crisis or with the cholera crisis in Haiti. Here in the United States, they have done, for instance, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, that people might be familiar with. So really uh, an architectural office devoted to making the world a better place. So he was our first um, interview. And by the way, um, he was very, he is very close to Paul Farmer, you know, the, the doctor from Partners in Health that we just lost two days ago. So really seriously um, social justice as, uh, as a vector. But then after Michael, we had, uh, we had interviewees like, for instance, there was um, uh, Alyssa Eckert, who is one of the two illustrators at the CDC at the Center for Disease Control that are responsible for the branding of the coronavirus. She is the one, together with her partner, Dan Higgins, that made that made the coronavirus into this landmine, into this deep water mine with the mean as proteins that are red and spike out like Hellraiser. Because, you know, the coronavirus is a gray blob with some dots around it, right? So they branded the coronavirus. Oh, so okay. she was an interview. Then this anesthesiologist from Bologna, Marco Ranieri, that in the span of a night, together with his colleague and with a friend that was making plastic objects near Bologna, made the valve that splits the ventilator in two. And then teenage girls in Afghanistan, in Herat, that are wonderful geeks and uh, were doing stopgap ventilators, putting together hacking parts. So all of these different people that really had uh, a, a, a part to play, a role to play in the acute moment of the pandemic and the lockdown. And then after things, not really calmed down because they didn't calm down, but after things kind of dissipated into many other crises, we wanted to highlight, Alice and I wanted to highlight how crises are interconnected, right? So in a way, the COVID crisis was heightened in certain parts of the world by a social justice crisis, an environmental crisis. So we started talking also to other interviewees, to other designers that we felt were showing the way on how to tackle all these different pressure points in the world. And, and to me, it seems like this sort of knack that you have, you have, obviously Alice has too, because she's a journalist and a critic. Um, you know, for me, it's like I can link this to your time at Avatare and Domus and 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 your sort of earlier part of your life. Is this something that you constantly are reminded by this kind of magazine making? Rather, you know, I am totally. In, uh... Oh, my God, Dan, you just hit the spot. I'm totally a journalist, but I am uh, a self-trained journalist. Alice is a trained journalist, so she's always like showing me the way sometimes about some rules, but you're completely right. And that's my way of curating. I mean, there's um, um, a curator here, past curator, Emilio Ambas. He was a curator here in the 70s, and he has left an oral history as MoMA, MoMA Archives has, has this whole collection of, of oral histories. And he was talking about all the different kinds of curators that exist. And um, he was talking about himself as a hunter-gatherer. <laughs> and I've always loved it because... It, reporting is hunter hunting gathering, right? Yeah, I, Whenever, I would describe to people that uh, 
working at a design magazine, I, I, I would describe it as being a JPEG hunter. Yeah. At the well, end of the day, your I'm, time, hunting yes. for, <laughs> I'm, hunt, I'm hunting for JPEGs. That's basically what I'm hunting for. Fresh JPEGs to roast over the open fires. Absolutely. Bleeding. Yeah. Right. Yes. Exactly. No, I know. So, so truly a journalistic spirit is what I have uh, deep in me. So I'm not a scholar, I'm more a journalist. And when you're, when you think about what you've, done with Design Emergency and now there's a book attached to it. Do you think that this kind of communication that you're in this sort of curation, as you described, is it something that you you couldn't really accomplish with, say, you know, an exhibition? No. Um, you know, there's a place and a medium for everything, right? So um, I believe that in this particular case, what we are showing are personal story we're showing stories we want to inspire people not only with the objects but with the with the people themselves with the characters themselves so i think it's very important to use the medium of the interview like i'm not really good at podcasts because i always have to show the object there needs to be a parallel but i believe that this is the right way to go about it when i did design and violence with jamer we had proposed it as a show at the beginning, but, um, you know, MoMA didn't really go for it. And I understand why, you know, because it was about objects that have an ambiguous relationship with violence. So it would have been an odd show more for a social history museum than for an art museum. And instead online, it was perfect. So, so no, I think that this is the right way. Maybe it's not only Instagram Live, maybe it should be YouTube, who knows. But the interview in this particular way, short, to the point, uh, rehearsed beforehand, not really rehearsed, but the questions are um, set before because it's not about a gotcha uh, moment, but rather about using a half hour to explain in a very inspiring way that you can be an architect and, a cre and and design great hospitals to improve the life of people in that are in danger of dying of Ebola in Rwanda. You know, so it, it is about showing people how diverse design can be. And a JPEG in that case might not be incisive enough. You might want to see the eyes of the person that has achieved that feat. And one of the things that you posted about, which I, you know, spurred a question that I've been asking a lot of people is this, you know, you complain that the term metaverse has sort of been ruined by Facebook. This prefix meta um, has been kind of spoiled now. Uh, and now we have to listen to it all the time. And as someone who, you know, really thinks about design and this, and you've done so much work in terms of the appreciation of the digital realm, whether it's like the at symbol, bringing that to MoMA and Tetris and all, all these kinds of things. What is your take on this idea now of the metaverse as like a new sort of cultural buzzword that is sort of everywhere and nowhere at the same time? Well, I, the name is a problem. And so until we find another name, I'm sticking with the minions and it's the banana verse. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it always makes me laugh, but I love the I love the minions. But um, the name is a, is an issue, but the dimension has existed for a very long time, um, in the sense that if you think about it, Second Life was yeah. 
mm-hmm. was the banana verse, right? Yes. And um, it was a banana verse that did not work well because it became too similar to real life with too many velvet ropes and too many tacky malls and too many privileges and exclusions. And so it was not fun anymore. I mean, I remember I was on Second Life only because I could teleport and that was my dream. But, you know, going back to designing the Elastic Mind, um, one of the commissions, I was so unhappy with Second Life that one of the commissions for designing the Elastic Mind was an alternative, a better alternative to this banana verse at that time in 2008. So the people that I commissioned were um, Greg Lynn, the architect, Peter Frankfurt from Imaginary Forces, and then Alex McDowell, who was the production designer for Minority Report. And they created, it was a demo. They couldn't really do the software because it would have taken too much, but a demo of this city that went in scale from planet to somebody's home that everybody could access. There was no velvet rope. People could go everywhere, but not everybody could design it. There, there was a commission that you proposed your designs for buildings or for whatever too, and it was approved. So in a way, there was a, a set of, sort of an aesthetic police or a formal police, but complete accessibility. So, so um, in other words, this dimension existed before also technologically, and it existed forever uh, philosophically, right? Today, we have better technology, so it can happen in, uh, uh, and also video games have been using this banana verse forever. You know what I'm saying? People, kids have been buying objects and transacting and communicating and living on platforms. So today, the real change is that companies have gotten wind of its visibility. Technology is becoming better. The blockchain is making things at least apparently there's a lot of myths also about the blockchain and, and NFTs, but um, it seems much more approachable and companies have decided to monetize it. So everybody's now there because it seems more accessible. Cryptocurrencies have made it easier. So there's this perfect storm that makes it so that the time is ripe and that everybody is investing in it. And therefore, you know, when you invest in something, you will it to happen, right? And if you don't invest, you don't will it to happen. Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about hydrogen fuel cells. We could have had them for 25 years, but there was a deliberate choice not to invest in them, right? So when there's investment, things happen. And so that's why I think right now it is happening. But I've always believed in it. uh, And uh, I always just expected it to become just more accessible to all because that's always the problem, you know, accessibility. So when it comes to design solutions, uh, especially for climate change, they tend to fall into two different groups. One, uh, tiny innovations, you know, one step at a time, or big ideas like the Great Green Wall, for example, that's mentioned in the book. What do you think our focus should be uh, as citizens who just care? Is it about pushing for really big ideas or tiny incremental change over time? I say that everybody's different. You know what I'm saying? So the vector should all be the same, you know, you know, we should all be gearing towards trying to do better and do do better for the rest of nature and for ourselves. And if there are people that have the 
approach, the scale that the people that started the Great Green Wall of Africa have, more power to them. And I respect equally the people that instead are implementing, like here at MoMA, there's a task force that's been working like crazy to really save energy and to bring MoMA to a very low footprint. It's I respect them as much as I respect the creators of the Great Green Wall of Africa. You know what I'm saying? I think it takes all. Great Green Wall of Africa is a great example when it comes to complexity because we're talking about 21 nations from the Atlantic Ocean to the Indian Ocean that have to agree to make this belt of greenery happen at the southern edge of the Sahel. Not an easy feat, but even in that case, you can't impose the same regulation on all. You need to set a vector and then make it so that everybody works towards it, right? So I think it's the same. It takes all people. And there is this beautiful metaphor, no, beautiful quote um, that I used for the opening of my essay. I did an exhibition that was the 22nd Triennale di Milano that was called Broken Nature, that was all about these different examples of restorative design. And the initial quote was Bucky Fuller talking about trim tabs. You know, trim tabs are very small steering paddles that are under gigantic transatlantic oil tankers that are small, but many. And when they all turn in the same direction, they can steer a gigantic oil tanker. It's the same, right? It takes all people. I just want to make sure that this emergency, this need to do something becomes everybody's culture, right? I am hoping that something akin to the anti-smoking campaign happens, right? So all of a sudden people, we say in Italy, take the ham slices from their eyes and see the truth, right? So that's what I'm hoping. Before we return to Paola, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. One of Fort Street Studios' luxurious offerings is the brand's Thai silk collection of rugs and tapestries. It's a rare and exclusive production that involves hand-reeled silk spun into thick cord or soft yarns to create original designs by founders Janice Provisor and Brad Davis. These artistic designs are then produced by a team of women in a remote village in northern Thailand, where they do everything from grow and harvest the silk, prepare the yarn, string the looms, to weaving the carpets. The high gloss effect of Thai silk makes it perfect for flat woven creations that are ribbed, cable knit, or brocaded, or for a more traditional cut pile carpet, or even an exotic fur-like shag. And just like all offerings from Fort Street Studio, the Thai silk collection can be customized to your needs in color and shape. To create your own heavenly soft Thai silk rug, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And one of the chapters in the book talks about sort of design's response to COVID and considering how many people are pushing back against restrictions and vaccinations now and this sort of backlash that's everyone's, you know, it's, it's a big part of everyone's life, no matter what no matter how we feel about it. Do you see this more as a as a policy failure or is this 
in some ways a design failure? Well, it depends on whether you consider policy design, right? And some people do. I, I just, I try to stop the definition of design at having at least one of the senses involved. Otherwise, everything becomes design. Um, I think it's more uh, policy should be as dynamic as is um, as is culture, right? So this pandemic has been going on for two years. There have been different phases. Uh, and there have been different reactions and moods in society. Now, of course, there will always be a difference between those who believe that they should do what they want and that the individual is more important than the community and those instead that believe the community is more important than the individuals. This is the dividing line between all different approaches. I do believe, however, that if we were able, and it's hard for, for a country like the United States because of the different states and the federal government, but it's more possible in smaller countries. If governments were able to adapt policies, to make them dynamic to people, how people are feeling and what science is telling them, I think it might work better. You know, for instance, I'm thinking, I, I uh, you know, here in the United States, the postal office was supposed to give you two COVID tests for free, right? I think I requested them in December, when, when Omicron was still booming, I got them yesterday. In the meantime, I've done three vaccinations and I got breakthrough COVID and I bought my own tests, right? I got them yesterday, too late, too little, too late. You know what I'm saying? So I believe that um, there is a problem and I don't want to blame anyone because it's hard to govern, it's hard to make policy, but there's a disconnect between the reality of how people feel and live and policymakers. And in all of these big topics that are in the book, uh, activism, pride, there's a chapter on a project of rewilding. Um, is there any that's sort of close to your heart that you that you really sort of, uh, you know, of course, they're all problems and, and issues that are super important. But is there one that you particularly uh, is just sort of closer to you? I tend to always look for a methodology that allows me to tackle all of them. So in a way, the one about systems and complexity, you know, the interview with Adam Bly is particularly interesting to me because uh, it allows to see how these rewilding uh, AI, how everything is interconnected. And I really feel this urge in my heart to try and make that interconnectedness visible for people so that they do not feel that if they tackle only part of it, they're useless, you know? So that's particularly dear to my heart, but they all are. Even the work of, um, uh, for instance, Forma Fantasma and, uh, uh, and Forensic Architecture are very dear to me. This idea that design and architecture can be methods of investigation and not only producing objects, right? So gosh, everything is very dear. You know, so uh, I would say that every single interview and every single chapter in the book is something that Alice and I feel strongly about. And now that you sort of you've embarked on this sort of design emergency project for quite a while, I was wondering what you've learned about this emergency itself beyond the story, the sort of individual stories of each person that you've spoken to. Have you kind of has your understanding of how the world is tackling all of these crises like climate change and 
uh, inequality and all sorts of things. Is there any kind of forest from the trees that you've been able to kind of discern the more you speak to all of these, you know, the these sort of super talented people all over the world, each one working in their own little tiny uh, specialty, let's say? I so would like to tell you that, yes, I'm seeing the forest, but it's so not true. <laughs> I am, if anything, even more confused. I see amazing uh, dedication, efforts, achievements. And at the same time, I see so many powers that be pedaling backwards. It's, uh, it's disheartening. It's as if the more the good people of the world try to build something better, the more there are recessionary forces, regressive forces that try to pull us back. And, you know, the crisis of democracy is disheartening. And also the bully culture that we're in right now uh, is the op opposite of the graciousness that I was discussing before. It's the opposite of the Peter Farmers of the world. It's the opposite of all of these beautiful people that really dedicate themselves to, to society. So... I am just hoping, I don't see the forest. No, I don't. I'm still in the middle of the trees and I just try to protect the trees that I see are really growing in a hopeful way and the elder trees that deserve to be protected. But I'm just hoping that um, that this should be, I'm, I'm hoping that the approach, the kind of confusion that I'm feeling is instead a contemporary approach, I'm, I'm, let me put it this way, complexity is such that if you try to tackle it as an ensemble, you just are set to fail, right? So maybe the ambition of seeing the forest is the wrong one, right? Maybe in to tackle the complexity that we've been talking about, the interrelated systems of extraction, the crisis, etc., maybe the best way to go is instead to follow the path in the forest. And, uh, uh, and the key to complexity is not to take it all at the same time, but rather to see it in a fractal way, big systems that become granular, more granular, more granular, and you tackle the one that is next to you and uh, you you just give force to people near you and take force from them. You know, I, I hope I'm being clear because it's, um, I understand it's a little bit of a touchy-feely explanation, but I don't believe that it's, um, that it's for us to take it all. But technology is helping. I feel that AI, um, much maligned and much feared, and sometimes for good reasons, could be an incredible tool to help us. And, uh, and so are many other technologies. And when it comes to MoMA, what's next for you? Well, what, what I'm doing here at MoMA is I'm doing a small installation about systems from the collection, objects from the collection. So I told you it's very dear to me. And then in the fall, an exhibition about the video games and other examples of interactive design from the collection. Oh, okay. With a book on it. So I'm, I'm producing books one after the other. Will Second Life be a part of it? No, it's not part of the collection. Uh, uh -uh. Okay. No, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to mention it in my essay, of course, but it's oh, not okay. going to be part of it. But, you know, we have, um, at this point, we have 36 video games in the collection that we have acquired over years. It's been an amazing experience to also set the criteria for collecting and the criteria of how to collect. And, you know, it's been really fascinating. That's for another another podcast episode because it's really, <laughs> it's a big deal. But it's, so I'm, I'm working on that right now. But um, I, I have to say, 
and on the R&D salons. I mean, we just had our most recent one was about breath, and it was last week. And what do you think is the future for something like Design Emergency? You're going to keep doing it? Is it something that you ever see as an end point? So far, yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, what I, our motto is that there is always a design emergency. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it can mutate. I mean, we are doing our sixth season. We're in the thick of it right now. And uh, uh, the book is coming out May 25th. And then there might be, in the meantime, we've done as many interviews that could even be a second book. Who knows? I mean, the material never ends, right? And the need to show how important design is also never ends. So Alice and I will keep going uh, and I hope we'll be working together for a long time because we really love it. Whether it's going to be design emergency in this format or in another, who knows, inshallah. Thank you to Paola, the Museum of Modern Art and the team at Fiden for making this episode happen. Design Emergency is available for pre-order now at Fiden.com. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Mm-hmm.